Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All righty. We are picking up in chapter 20. Now, we've already had a little discussion about Egypt and Cush. Remember the... Uh, 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 the Ethiopians, well, we're going to come back again. So we're, we're going to do that. And obviously, in chapter 22, then, we're back to Israel. So we're going to keep bouncing back and forth because you know, Israel is the, the main theme here. And what this is showing is how, how integral Israel is to all of this. So what Israel is doing, you know, the punishment is the same for them as it is for everybody else. But it's, it's mostly because Israel got this ball rolling that now no one is truly following the Lord, except, you know, of course, Isaiah himself. So what we're doing is, is we're, we're following a pattern here. And it's a pretty simple pattern. What Isaiah is told to share to all these nations, including Israel, is, is a, a short-term, soon-to-be prophecy. And that has always been disaster, right? Always, you know, these bad things are going to happen. That's, that's short-term. Now, short-term is sometimes longer than what we would consider to be short-term. Uh, by the time we get to chapter 22, if you do the math on that, that prophecy is not for 125 years, but it's still short-term. What is, becomes long-term then is this hopeful future that we keep hearing. The remnant, remember all the times we talked about the remnant, that there's this hopeful future of at least a few people in the end finally getting it and then leading others back to God. So that's, that's the cycle. So most all of these have that, those two elements. And there's usually a, a pretty clear demarcation when that happens. Is it bad, 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 bad? And that says, but <laughs> now there will come a day when these disasters will end or all these uh, ravaging armies will, will cease. Uh, those, those kind of statements. So just make, making that point. But again, you know, chapter 22 is going to be 125 years in the future. So all these people who actually hear it, from Isaiah personally, you're going to be long dead and gone. So this is something that's you know, passed on from generation to generation. So in verses 2 to 4, something fun and exciting happens. Isaiah is now going around naked. What fun is that? Now, here, here's what's happening. Up to this point, Isaiah had been walking around in sackcloth, which is the traditional sign, a call for repentance. Now he is instructed to take it off. So in other words, I know you guys aren't going to repent, so we're going to stop playing that game. Uh, we get a further indication of that, I think, in the next chapter. Um, so now, instead, Isaiah is instructed to walk around naked for three years. So it's not for you know, just a couple minutes here to get on the news, but for three years walking around naked to, to now demonstrate what is going to happen specifically to the Egyptians and the Ethiopians, that they are going to be wiped out. As, you know, the, the land will be made naked of them. This is, so it's a symbolic prophecy here. 
but this is what uh, he's, he, he's instructed to do. The disaster is going to come in exactly three years. So leading up to that, every time you saw Isaiah, he's, he's proclaiming this is what's going to happen to you. Um, again, you know, God knows they will not repent. If they did repent, all bets are off. But he knows they're not. And that's why these, these prophecies come across as, you know, this is definitely going to happen. Notice there hasn't been the word if and then. If you do this, then I will do that. We haven't seen that formula because God knows they won't do it. They're, they're, they're full of pride and they, they think that they can figure things out on their own and they don't need God. And God knows that, well, that's not going to change any time in the near future, so we're just going to go with this plan instead. So, verse 5 we see clear evidence of that. We've consistently seen that God's biggest complaint against these nations, including Israel, is that they've become filled with pride. They're, they're, they're full of themselves thinking that they can solve their own problems. And instead, you know, they're, 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 they just they refuse to trust God. So God's response, look at verse 5, they will be put to shame. But it also says that the Egyptians will be afraid. Afraid of what? What's going to happen? Okay, who's, who's making it happen? Isaiah or God? God. Isaiah is just the messenger. Right. So God is the one making it happen. So what they're afraid of is, is God's wrath. And again, you, you, see, that, you see that clearly you know, throughout Scripture, and especially in, in Revelation, that people figure out that this is God doing this, but they continue to, to clench their fist and grind their teeth against God and, and refuse to repent. Uh, that's the situation we have here. So they know who, who is bringing this terror upon them, but they will not repent. They will not return to the Lord. They've gone far, far away, and they will not humble themselves and come back to God. Just seems pretty silly, doesn't it? <laughs> but that's, that's the story. Doing that? Say some more. Well, I'm just wondering are we being told by happenings that we're in that same boat and we refuse? Well, let's, 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 let, let's define what, what I'm asking for further, further definition on is the word we. So, are you saying that, that we sitting around this table who I would like to think we, we have humbled ourselves and are about the Lord? Uh, are you saying we are the same as the vast majority of people out there? I, I, I think there is a difference. I guess is what I'm asking. So, so I, yeah, I mean, so we generally, yes, as a nation, we, we might be able to to make a case for that. But I, I would like to think of ourselves as that that remnant. That and I, I think the the key to being a remnant is knowing what's going to happen and knowing how bad it's going to get. We will remain true and faithful. You see, that's that's the definition. That, that we, we refuse to join with the craziness out there, the the sin that is rampant all around us. We refuse to to support that, refuse to, to participate in that, uh, and in fact, we use whatever means necessary to fight against it. So, yeah, the world as a whole, as the old saying goes, going to hell in a handbasket, <laughs> right? Uh, but there are those of us who refuse to 
to do that. But yes, it is bananas and nuts and wrong and awful and just stupid. I mean, the, the people can't see that because you know what, what we're seeing is, I mean, there is innate within all of us this, this spiritual need. And what we're seeing, what we see here is, I mean, even God's people know the, the true God, and yet there's a spiritual need, and for some reason feel as though God is not supplying that need, therefore they integrate other gods, other other idols into the pure Jewish religion to you know, augment it. I mean, that, they're, they're trying to fill a spiritual void with something other than God. See, that's really you know, the bottom line principle here. Just come to God. <laughs> he, that's what he's saying all along. I mean, he's going to say here, to, you know, in uh, uh, this next next chapter that I mean, I'm right here for you. <laughs> I'm ready to do everything for you if we just humble yourselves and, and admit that I'm, I'm ready to go. But you know, the the pride, I think, is the, the the source of all the all the craziness we see out there. And you know, we're just we're creating. Inventing all these new, for lack of a better phrase, religion. You know, these different idols to worship. And uh, you know, what, what is so prevalent now is, is just a, a nature kind of worship. Uh, and believing that, you know, as you said a couple of weeks ago, that, that humanist type stuff, that, you know, we're, you know, I mean, that, that is the biggest affront to God I could ever imagine. I mean, that, by definition, is saying we don't need God, we are fully sufficient in our own minds that we we can be a God ourselves. Boy, that's can't believe God's not taking them out with lightning bolts, right? But yeah, that's we just see that constantly. People are just, just making stuff up and just you know whatever sounds good to them. And all God wants is let's do this. So I've said it before, I'll say it again. There's one way to get it right, there's a thousand ways to get it wrong. Now I'm glad there's only one way to get it right, because that's pretty distinct and clear from the thousand you get wrong, right? You can see that clearly, but our minds somehow convince us, let's blame it on the devil, that we can come up with a better way. God's way is okay, but yeah, we can come up with a much, much better way. And what they're doing here then, this pride leads them to uh, believing that their, their, their military strength, uh, the Egyptians, uh, remember their pride was their agricultural strength, uh, that you find some physical means to satisfy your spiritual need. So material wealth, uh, military, agriculture, you know, something. You will find something to replace God. And that's why this, this punishment, this destruction is so universal. It strikes me, this, this time uh, that Isaiah is in is much like uh, the day of Noah. What's God say? I'm looking around. Boy, it says everyone on earth was evil and gone their own way, except no one in his family of the remnant. See, just just eight of them. Um, it seems as though this time is very very similar to that because you got to look really hard to find anybody at this point who is willing to stay with God. So what what the, the remnant we keep talking about? Uh, it doesn't give the sense of they have always remained true. It says that they, they finally, the few of them finally understand and get it and return to the Lord. That's the word that keeps being used with the, with the remnant. They, they return. 
Uh, thankfully, yes, they eventually get it, but what I'm saying is you and I don't want to take that chance. We don't want to you know, follow the crowd to our own destruction and then finally get smart. You know, V8 moment here, and you, know, you hit your forehead and say, oh, geez, I should have thought of that earlier, and then, okay, God, I, I give up and I come back. You don't want to do that because while you're out there, Jesus might return or the bus might hit you. So you want to remain faithful. You want to remain true. You want to be consistent and reliable as God is consistent and reliable. So once we understand that, then that, that changes our, our approach to them out there. We, we have to understand what's going on in their minds before we can minister to them. Because really, you know, just walking up to some sinner that we know and smacking up alongside the head with a Bible, you know, usually doesn't work. They say they just they call us all kinds of names that we're judgmental, we're this, we're this phobe, that phobe, whatever, and uh, you know it just you know they will not listen to us if we approach it that way. So we, we we have to understand what's going on out there, and it's it's way different than it's ever been before. Yeah, I mean, what was going on 30 years ago is nothing in this country like it, like it is right now. The game has changed entirely, and uh, if you spend any, any time with uh, with millennials, you'll you'll discover that. Uh, millennials are, are incredibly uh, mindful of the need for social, trying to benefit socially. So they're they're all about, you know, serving food pantries and and you know here at Thanksgiving, serving Thanksgiving dinners. Yeah, they're huge on that, uh, which is great. But what they're doing is they're doing it for themselves. They're not doing it for Jesus. They're doing it just to be good. And that's, that's, that's what is so prevalent in, in, in certainly that age group. But I think a, 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 lot, a lot of us who are older are also in, in that same boat. That, you know, I just, I just have to be good. In other words, just not bad. But that's the point of Jesus' opposition to the Pharisees. Because that was exactly their mindset. I'm not doing any good, I'm just not bad. <laughs> and compared to others, that's better. But Jesus says that's not good enough. That's why he keeps calling them brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs and all that. You look good on the outside, but it's not the type of goodness that God wants for us. That's, that, that's why this, this study is so, so helpful. But yeah, we can see in this, now this is... 2,700 years later <laughs> today, and we can see so much of this today. That I mean, this this is the way many many nations, including our own, is right now. And so we we have to be instrumental in 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 turning that around. Verse six, last verse. This is a quick one. The realization finally comes to the Egyptians and Cushites that their plan to take care of themselves has failed. And yet now they realize there's no one to help them. Look at the last words. How then can we escape? They finally come to this realization. They, they, they don't turn to God. They just realize there's no way out of this. They know God's doing it, but they will not finally submit and say, God, I'm sorry, you were right. I'm wrong. Please forgive me. They refuse to do that. And again, most people around us today are of that same mindset. Desperate, searching for the spiritual answer that fills the need they have, 
but they will look everywhere but with God. Just sad. There was a very quick chapter 20. See anything else in there you'd like to bring up? You want to talk talk more about about Isaiah's uh, exposed buttocks? Um, that seems a little ridiculous. Three years? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's got to be a figure of speech or something. But but historically, and you, you look in Kings and Chronicles, you see the time frame, and in fact, it was three years. Remember, in the earlier prophecy, God God said you can count the days. For, for three years, so, yeah. Well, I'm okay with the time, but naked for three years? <laughs> That's a little cold. <laughs> I thought the same thing. I compared it to the man in here that's demon-possessed. Uh-huh. And he would take off his clothes. Uh-huh. Remember? And I thought, well, it must mean something other than it took his clothes off. Just like it's it means something else somehow or something. Well, again, the symbolism is the body demonstrates what is going to happen. That's the, he wore sackcloth to demonstrate your need for repentance. Now that's gone. So I will show nakedness to show utterly what will happen to you. You will be stripped naked of everything, including your life. Yeah, I've and so, you know, walking around for three years into, you know, and exposing himself literally, <laughs> see what I did there, uh, to, to these other nations then, you know, demonstrates that this is what is going to happen. The wrath of God will, will, will bring that upon you. I mean, you know. But then God, you wonder what happened to his credibility. Right, because that, that, that is an embarrassment, a, a, a shameful thing, but... Well, it's analogous to, and I never can remember who this is. Who, who was the prophet that was told to marry a prostitute? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's similar to that. It's outrageous. Why why would you do that? But again, that was to demonstrate the 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 prostitution of Israel with these other gods. You see, so I mean, it's it's a symbolic point. So I mean, it goes in pretty good detail there. I mean, take take off the sackcloth and 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 your sandals as well. So, he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. I mean, that seemed pretty clear to me. That's physically what what he did. Yet it wasn't clear to them. Well, exactly. <laughs> they, they sure looked at him funny. Yeah. And, uh, the nut job, but yeah, yeah. He started to pull to see when the first day would be that he well, would wear clothes. Well, I mean, if you're like John the Baptist and eating, eating bugs and honey, that, you know. <laughs> People are going to think you're a little weird too, right? So, like I say, you know, these are these are uh, demonstrative of, symbolic of, a much deeper meaning. But physically, that's precisely what what happened. Yeah. Maybe you walked around all night in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, chapter in chapter six there. See what has happened to those we relied on. We would be the Jews, the Hebrews, right? He's talking to he's talking to the Jewish people here, isn't he? See what has happened to those we relied on. No, I think it's, it's still talking to Egypt. E- Egypt, the northern part of Egypt, is on the coast, is on on the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Ethiopia has a section that that touches the the ocean as well, the, the sea as well. Yeah, this is. Yeah, without a reference to Judah, Jacob, uh, Israel, or something, yeah, you know, 
I think we can only conclude this is this is directly stated to to who would state it to the whole, the whole thing is stated to yeah. All right. Okay. Because yeah, the, yeah, people who live on the coast will say that. Okay. Yes. Got it. So there's, you know, how many times do we do we see that in that verse six in that day? I mean, it's about twenty times we've seen that so far. So again, you know, that there's this coming day, and we have to figure out then is that one of the soon to be times or is that the long range future times? So the long range future comes in two different forms. The we had the long range future of uh, Jesus coming. Right, chapter eight. But then there's also expression of the long, long, long range of basically heaven that's held out. So we're dealing with three distinct time periods: what's going to happen in the near future, what's going to happen in the medium future, and what's going to happen in the end. End. So uh, every time you see that formula in that day, you have to figure out which one of these time frames it is. Uh, but apparently, that in that day is. In three years, um, I'm not sure it's going to tell us. Well, we're going to be excited to find out if it actually says that. Okay, Isaiah, go ahead and put your clothes back on. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Um, I got to kind of think. I'll do some research because it might not even be in the in this book of Isaiah. But the, the, the Isaiah parallels a lot of stories in uh, uh, Chronicles and and Kings in in the Old Testament. Those are more history books that tell. More details of these stories, these kings, and uh, God's God's people. So, any other thoughts in chapter twenty? Yeah, I think maybe we're just at a point where it, God knew they weren't going to repent, so the embarrassment didn't matter, and the his Isaiah didn't really his credibility didn't matter because you think about it. We get a lot, a lot of churches here. If a preacher in our local community or somebody that claims to be a Christian stripped for three years, we would think that was absolutely crazy. Telling everybody, I don't go to that church. And <laughs> church. Mm-hmm. So I think we're just to a point where it doesn't matter and God's telling this is going to happen. It's done. And here's a, here's a physical reminder of this being done. Really? Yep. Chapter 21. Starts off real weird. This is an oracle concerning the desert by the sea. By definition, a desert can't be by a sea because it's water, right? So that's just odd. And when you look at the desert is not wet and the sea is not dry. So that's a very, very strange thing to say. But basically what this prophecy is about is the same as all the others. Saying that, you know, don't trust Babylon because she too will fall. Again, Babylon is not even an empire yet. They're not even a nation. So this is one of those medium future type things. Not going to happen in three years, but it's going to happen in like, you know, 75 years. So the point is, trust God instead. So, of course, the sea is used for for commerce, for trade, for making money, uh, all those things. And the, the... what that means is that you know the sea can't save you, and while we're at it, neither can the desert. <laughs> yeah, there, in other words, nothing can save you when you've gotten to a point of using up all your chances, rejecting God, and God knows that you're you're not going to repent. 
Verse 2. Elam and Media. Now, Media is not what we call media today. Uh, it was an actual... Yeah, Elam and Media were small, very small countries. But for when, when, when Babylon became an empire, they, they allied with, with Babylon. But now see the prediction is that they will turn on Babylon and begin to, to attack them. But again, there's, yeah, there's these alliances. That's what you know, all, all these nations are doing. So when a big empire comes, a bunch of little ones get together and say, yeah, we can, we can fight these guys. That's your choice or join the big empire. So you look at it and figure out who's going to win. Remember the country we looked at before? They were, they were really good at that. So the Assyrians, they're going to win. We'll join with them. Then they look around and saw the Babylonians come and said, oh, those guys are pretty good. We're going to leave the Assyrians and go with the Babylonians. So we always want to go with the winner. So Elam and Media started off with Babylon, but then turned on them in the end. Verses 3 and 4. Here we find a description of the reaction of the people to the destruction of Babylon. Again, this is way in the future. Because no one thought that the Babylonian military could ever be defeated. That's how big and powerful it was. I mean, Assyria was incredible. But the Babylonian machine was just nuts. I mean, it was, it was airtight. No one in their wildest dreams thought they could ever happen. And here, as it happens, the people react. And they react with you know, lamenting. Because they begin to realize that this most powerful mechanism on earth has been defeated by God. Again, you know, they, they, they can't fathom that prior to that. They see this military strength and say, well, we don't need God, we have this. And now God defeats even the greatest military the world has ever seen. And the people just, they're just stunned. I mean, look, look at this descriptions in verses 3 and 4. My, my body racked with pain. I stagger by what I hear. I'm bewildered by what I see. My heart falters. Fear makes me tremble. Even the night becomes a horror. I mean, those are pretty graphic descriptions there. But like I say, as, as people you know, are observing this, they just, are you kidding me? So what I counted on, literally as my salvation, has been taken away. And again, they're not even smart enough to realize that they need to return to the Lord at that point. But it's a pretty fun description, isn't it? I mean, my heart falters and my body's racked with pain and, you know, just... Bad, 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 bad. Question. Please. If this is a prophecy for, like I said, mid-future, 100 years down the road, who is Isaiah relating this to? <coughs> to the people of the time? Yes. And saying this is going to happen in the future? Mm -hmm. But they're not going to be around. So you pass that on to the next generation? Hopefully. Yeah. Yes. Because you look at it and say, well, you know, nothing happened, so the heck with that. And it was obviously written down. Right. So, that, but that's, that's really good because that, that's why the time, you need to understand the time frames. So you have the soon to be three years, you have the medium, 75 to 125 years future, you have, you know, then even longer range, like heaven. But that's what, is that what, what the Bible does? I mean, doesn't it talk about heaven? It talks about way out there. But in between there, it talks about 
things getting really bad and leading up to that. And then, so we still have the, the, the time frames today. And yes, that's, that's the point. We're supposed to pass that on to the next generation. We're supposed to understand this is really important stuff. And even if we're not around to see it, we need to prepare the next generation for it. Now, frankly, I, you know, what, what's happening in this country now, most of this stuff, Peter told me 50 years ago this stuff was going to happen, I'd laugh in your face. <laughs> no, this would never happen. You know, the shootings in churches and all of that, and schools, and I, no. Yeah, I never, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, I wouldn't have believed it. But, yeah. But that, that's the problem, because then you don't really prepare for mm -hmm. the eventual outcome. Yeah. So but, that you do go through. Yep. But you see, that's why Jesus says, since you don't know what's going to happen, you've got to be ready. So we have general indications of what's going to happen, not nearly as specific as what we have here. But that's why Jesus says, I'm, I'm not giving you any more. Just be ready. You know that the end is coming. So get yourself ready to go in that first wave whenever I return. I mean, it just, yeah, that's, that's all prophecy. That's, that's the point of prophecy. Yeah, and so the, the, the time frame doesn't matter. It's simply that this will happen. And so we need to convince ourselves that since it didn't happen in my generation, then I need to prepare the next generation for it. Because the, the worst thing that can happen is, is that there is a void in the transmission of this information. That, that's not important. Yeah, well, we're, I think we're, we're just not going to share it. Well, if you look at today's society, there is a void in that transition. Because unless you are a Christian and you are in a Bible study group, they're going to look at it and say, "Well, you know, uh, that was well." They already are some. Even some ministers are saying they're looking at this and saying, "Oh, that was back in that day." Yeah. And mm -hmm. it's not going to happen. We're not. We don't need to worry about that. So it, it, the time frame, I guess, is what's bothering me, is you're relying on people to pass the word along, but people are kind of fickle <laughs> in the sense that they say, well, if it didn't happen then, you know, probably not going to happen now, and so why should I worry about it? However, to that end, in the last week of Jesus' life, as you look in just the Gospel of Matthew, I mean, that's exactly what Jesus does. Um, he starts talking about the end, the preparation for the end, chapter after chapter, like four chapters in a row. I mean, it tells parables, you know, the wedding, the wedding feast. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're not ready, mm -hmm. you know, don't come with the oil for your lamp, you're out. Um, chapter 23, seven woes. Do we have woes, right? Mm -hmm. Seven woes. He's saying, all right, this, this is going to happen to these groups of people that are... Are, you know, just like back in Isaiah's day that are, that are designing society against you know, the poor, the widows, and the orphans and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, chapter 24, title, Signs of the End of the Age. <laughs> right? So the last week of Jesus' life, that's basically all he talked about. He's not talking about the lilies of the field anymore or the birds of the air. He's talking about better get your act together. Right? And again, chapter 24, I'm not telling you when that's going to be. So it's already been two thousand years. So yes, your, your your point is it would be it would be easy for us to be, become complacent in the long wait. But yet it says, just like God says through Isaiah, it's going to happen. Sometimes it says in three years. Sometimes it says one hundred seventy-five years or whatever. But it's going to happen. So you need to, as Jesus says, be ready. 
Um, chapter 25, the, 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 ten, the story of the ten virgins, the, you know, the parable of talents, but all of those are end with somebody going to hell. Every one of those parables. They are very, very specific. Uh, the last one is about the sheep and the goats, separating the sheep and the goats. But again, he waited till the last week after the triumphal entry, after Palm Sunday, to share those kind of stories. So I've been with you guys for three years and told you all this stuff. Now, you need to factor this in too, that this stuff is going to happen. So yes, the, the point is, do not become complacent in this. Now, I'm not sure you need to stand on a street street corner with a bullhorn and tell everybody they're going to hell. Uh, that usually doesn't work. Try, try a one-on-one approach. Take somebody out to lunch. Really care about you. Yeah. I believe that God's word is true and this is what God said. Yeah, what do you what do you think about that? Have a conversation. You'd be amazed at how people will respond to that, as opposed to hit them over the head with the Bible and tell them that they're going to hell. I've never known anybody that has responded well to that. There's never anybody that said, you know what, you're right. Thank you for telling me. I don't think anyone in recorded history has ever said that. <laughs> what you get is what you see in, in Noah's day, what you see in, 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 in Revelation, uh, what you saw is, is, is Jesus spent, spent that time in hell after, after the crucifixion, before the resurrection. Yeah, people make up their mind and there's just nothing you can do. I mean, Noah is a lot like Isaiah. Remember how long it took him to build that boat? I mean, that was the the naked symbol, right? I mean, it's, it was it, it was meant to be the same thing. God didn't snap his fingers and say, "Yeah, there's the ark. You got 15 minutes. Let's load, load it up, and we're out of here." It took hundreds of years, hundreds of years to build the ark. And it, I mean, if your neighbor had an ark, <laughs> now the the ark is. Essentially, the size is from Juliana Street down to the high school. That's how long that is. It's not going to fit in your garage. You can't hide this thing, right? So, everybody's coming by and looking at it and, no, what's this about? Just weird. Uh, people are curious, and now you have an opportunity to, to share with them. So, he told them, but not one of them. Change their mind. They just they scoffed at it. And I think that's your point is that's the kind of day we live in today. We keep telling, you know, this is the truth of God. They, like we're talking a foreign language to them. They, they, they refuse to listen. So that that should not discourage us. We need to keep doing that because we are held accountable for that. So we can't decide that, well, I'm not successful, so I'm, I'm going to quit. We just keep doing that. And that demonstrates our faithfulness. What they do with the information we give them is between them and God. So it's not our... We, we don't save people. We simply present them with the information that can be confirmed by the Holy Spirit in them that they will then say, I need to come to Jesus. But that's between that person and God, not, not us. We just share good news and that's it. I think the biggest argument against the whole thing is the timeline. Yeah. We keep saying this is going to happen, going to happen, going to happen, and it hasn't yet. Right. So people, after a while, well, so he's coming back. When? You said that yeah. before. 
the, the disciples actually bought into that too. Um, that's why they didn't write any gospels. They didn't write any of this stuff down until it was like one disciple left. <laughs> One of the apostles left. and they, Because Jesus said this generation will not die until, you know, as he's talking about his second coming, this generation will not die until you know, these things happen. And so they thought, well, why take the time and write it down? It's very laborious and nobody can read anyway. So big whoop there. It's a lot better to just you know, verbally share with people and try, try to lead, lead others to Christ that way as opposed to, to writing it down. But then they, you know, they realized that maybe we misunderstood what he said. And they did. When he was talking about the human generation, not this current generation, you know, that lasts only you know however many years, he meant the human generation. The human generation will not pass until these things happen. So you know, once they figured that out, then they they start writing like crazy. Said, well, we've got, you know, we're the last ones to have you know, eyewitnesses to this. We better write this down because the eyewitness account is is always the most accurate and best. So, yeah, good point. One other question. Go ahead. Uh, at the end of verse 2, I will bring an end to all the groaning she caused. She would be Babylon? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was a lot of groaning. Because <laughs> remember, Babylon is, you know, the Assyrians, as bad as they were, the Babylonians were way worse because when they, they took over Israel, they exported all the men out of Israel to be slaves in, in Babylon. But again, you know, Romans 8.28 that God works all things for the good for those who love him. Look, 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 look what God did. I mean, as a result of that, we had Daniel, we had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some of the most powerful stories in the entire Bible occurred in that Babylonian captivity. So even neat things can happen in the midst of seeming uh, defeat and, and despair. Verses 6 to 10 just gives a long list of... Uh, the specific of what, what's going to happen to, to Babylon. And again, to Donna's point, this is before they're even a, a, a nation. <laughs> so, you know, when you hear something like that, that hasn't even, you can't even visualize. So, you know, a hundred years ago, we got in a time machine and, and, and went back a hundred years ago and started telling people, well, there's going to come a day when, when, when we have, you know what a phone is, right? Yeah, they, yeah, they know what a phone was. But our phone is going to be able to do, we're not going to need a wire anymore. And we're going to be able to show pictures on it. And we're going to be able to make it, you know, and tell, describe what a phone can do today. And, huh? They just, no concept. You're talking a foreign language. They, they can't conceive of it. But nonetheless, this is God sharing. And the hope is that in generations to come, as these things start to happen, somebody would say, gee, didn't Grandpa say something about these Babylonian guys? <laughs> right? But you've got to pass it on. You've got to get that information out there. And that's still our job today. Verses 11 and 12. This is a quickie. A two-verse prophecy against Duma. Now, Duma is an oasis. It's not even a city. It's just an oasis. It's, it's located about 300 miles southeast of Jerusalem. To give you some, some bearings on that. Now, the message to Duma is strange because it keeps talking about the watchman. What's he watching for? Well, if you go back to verse 4, 21-4, it says that someone is waiting for, day, for twilight to come. But instead, it brings terror. So 
filled with throughout this is, is this, this this watching this this you know um, watching you know, things are getting really bad now I'm watching for things to get better but look what happens in Duma here they're watching for daylight to come isn't that the the common way you look at it you know the uh, the, the the darkness of night is replaced by light of day and it just you think, okay, now I can see again, now things, everything will be better. But look what it says here about Duma. The daylight also brings horror. And, and oh, by the way, verse 12, night's coming again. <laughs> Have fun with that. Um, but that's pretty much the message there. So again, you know, looking for salvation, looking for someone or something to save you other than God, only results in horror and terror. Because nothing can stand against God. And when these things start to happen, then if you haven't figured it out, you better figure it out. But apparently nobody does. So then verse 13, we start a several verse prophecy against Arabia. And Arabia, again, to get, to get your location, if you can picture where Israel is, Babylon is kind of a pretty far piece south East, so the area between Babylon and Israel is a pretty much a desert area, and that's that's Arabia. So that's a lot of you know, Iran, Iraq, in that general vicinity today is, is is where we're talking about. So in Arabia, verse fourteen is a place called Tema. That's another oasis. So Duma is three hundred miles southeast of, of Jerusalem. And Tema is another 200 miles south of Duma. <laughs> so it's heading way down and out. About 500 miles south of Jerusalem. So if you go back to verse 13, there's a reference to the Denonites. And they are a culture another 90 miles south of Tema. <laughs> so close to 600 miles. So it's, it's demonstrating the huge area covered here. <clears throat> so Israel... On the, on the coast of uh, the Mediterranean and what we're doing is we're just walking across basically over to the Himalayas the known world at that time northern Africa and that whole area that we now call the Middle East that was basically all they knew back then <coughs> so that's why we're, we're pinpointing these areas so that so that we can we can easily see it now Isaiah's walking around naked for three years. Look at verse 16. God says that this destruction coming on them is only going to take a year. Within one year. Now, within one year might mean today, might mean tomorrow. Or it might be day 365, right? You don't know. But absolutely, positively, it will happen in that time. Remember back a couple chapters ago, it said in exactly three years, you can count the days, he says, then this is going to happen. Now this is more of a general, within the year, this, this, this is going to happen. And again, you know, the, the point is, the, the message to Israel is, this is, see, that's why it's, it's short, short-term and long-term prophecies. Telling Israel, basically, all these other nations are going to get wiped out, so don't ally yourself with them. It's foolish. It's ridiculous. If you ally yourself with them, you're going to be part of the destruction. So 
separate yourself and come back to me. That's, that's the plea God, God keeps sharing. Now, the last verse, uh, 17, uh, is really, really powerful. The survivors of the bowmen, the warriors of Kedar, will be few. The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Now, what does that mean? The Lord has spoken. Get ready, baby. (laughs) (laughs) There's a good sermon title for you. Maybe that's something we ought to do is do a do a dialogue sermon with with all the yeah. uh, 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 all those those chapters from from Matthew about the end times and all that. So we'll just call that "Get Ready, Baby." So, all right, Jim got us started. Say some more about that. So get ready, get ready for what? Well, the prophecy's been given. You're in trouble, and your only answer is the Lord. So accept that. Get and what ready. happens if you, if you don't come back to the Lord? Okay, there, there is no doubt that this will happen. You see, when it, you know, when, it, when it says the Lord has spoken, we're going to come across that again. That's one of those, yeah, and you better believe I'm going to do it. Now, let's, let's apply that to regular life here on earth. Um, what would be the effect of a parent telling children, your children, that something bad is going to happen, but you were only telling the truth 50% of the time. So you're threatening your kids, something bad is going to happen, but it's you're, you're only telling the truth 50% of the time. What, what would be the effect of the children? What, what would their response be? You might as well not tell them at all. Precisely. What would be the effect of if only 10% you were lying? You must be consistent. If there's even 1% and the, the kids realize that, well, that one time you said it and you didn't mean it, they're going to think, well, I don't have to listen to anything you say. Right? So are we not God's children? So God knows that the best parenting policy is to the Lord has spoken, parents say it, you better mean it. Because the one the one time you, you don't follow through with it, it's going to take you a hundred more times of speaking the truth and being reliable and consistent to get that message back across to your kids. Because they will remember that, that one time you didn't mean it. The other thing about it is they're smart enough to figure out they know the line. Yeah. And they can take you right to that line and stop. Yep. They're smart. That's that's why the rules need to be very specific. And so, yeah, I, I always have fun with uh, anytime I go on a youth trip for a day or a week or whatever it may be, I, I consider the environment we're going into and then I write all these rules about what I expect them to try and cross or go up to the line or cross it. And I share that with them and say, okay, let's just get this on the table now. So here's your first warning. Next next time is not a warning. And a number of these things are, if you do this, I'm calling your parents and they will come get you. But but we're 500 miles away from home. Yeah. It will not be a pleasant ride home with you. <laughs> For you. So just follow it. So yeah, so I say it and I mean it. I, you know, they're, they're not idle threats. 
But yeah, it, it just I I finally had to, to change something in this church quite a few years ago. We used to have a water cooler right outside the office. And I moved it down to the elevator shaft. I wanted to push it down the elevator shaft. Uh, but I moved it out of the way because apparently no child on earth can ever walk by a water cooler and not get a drink. And so, yeah, you know, I'm in my office late afternoon and parents are coming to pick up their kids here to daycare. And I mean, you can't get anything done because all you hear are kids screaming out in the hallway. You know, parents are literally dragging them away. And then the kid puts up enough fuss. The parent always lets go. Go ahead, Billy, get a drink. And so Billy just just barely drinking. <laughs> just pushing push push the line. And the mother and father are saying, hey, said, come on, Billy, we've got to go. The kid's just <laughs> yeah, You dare not move me because I'm going to spill this. And uh, so I got you. And uh, almost all the parents I heard, which just drove me nuts, was, all right, Billy, I'm leaving. And they put their hand on the door and pretend to walk out and... Not one of them ever left. <laughs> but that's what you teach a kid. You, you, you teach them that my, my words mean nothing. So my point is God means this. There is not, you know, God, God is not going to say, well, this is what I'm going to do, but I better go check with this committee and make sure that it's okay. <laughs> right? God says, this is it, and it absolutely positive will happen exactly as I say it will. He means it. The Lord has spoken. The timeline too, because if Isaiah is can't be telling the Babylonians because they're not there yet, is he telling all this to Israel? It's basically all of these are for everybody. And that was Isaiah's job was to go around and, and share share these with right. To these right. Yes. Some of them weren't there yet. Right. But it's at least a warning to all the nations that did exist. There's gonna come a day when these Babylonians are coming and you need to you need to watch them. But complete disregard. They all allied with the Babylonians because they saw what an incredible machine they had and uh, uh, thought, well, they, they, they will protect us. Even, even Israel does it. And sure enough, as soon as uh, the, the Babylonians won the war, they took captive all the, all the Israelite men and farm, farmed them out and uh, just took over everything. So the, the point is simply trust in God. Just, just trust in God. You don't need anything else. The Lord has spoken, and that's all I can speak about in chapter 21. What else do you see there that is worthy of conversation? Chapter 22, a little bit bigger chapter here. Uh, now we go back to God's people, specifically Jerusalem, but again, we often focus on the capital city, meaning the entire nation. So again, you know, what, the, what this is saying is that you, my people, now again, this is all before it happened. It says you, my people, are going to become allies with the Assyrians, and they're going to abuse you something fierce. They're going to wipe you out, they're going to destroy you, they're going to really, really hurt you bad. And then you're going to see these Babylonians coming, and then you'll jump onto them, thinking they will save you. And they, they will do the exact same thing as the Assyrians. So God is telling them, this is what's going to happen. But they don't 
see it. And that's why the title of this is An Oracle Concerning the Valley of Vision. Now, if you're at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, you can't see much. <laughs> you can see in front of you, a narrow path in front of you. You can see a narrow path behind you. You look, look straight up, but you can't see much. You can't see left and right. You've lost most of your vision. So you can't be observant if you place yourself in a valley. If you really want to see things, you go up to the mountaintop. You go to a high place. The worst place to be in, 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 in a military conflict is in a valley. Because the enemy can go all around you, start shooting you from the top. No, no, no defense at all. If you're in the valley, that means there's walls on the side. They can trap you on both sides. I mean, it's, you can't defend yourself in a valley. That's why all these battles happened on, on a plane, a wide open area. You would never allow yourself to be, to, to, to be caught in a valley. So what this is saying is it, it's a contradiction. The, the Israelites contented themselves with very little, if any, vision and just put their trust in the Assyrians and in the Babylonians. They can't see what they're supposed to do. They refuse to see that they need to put their trust in God. The end result for the Israelites is the exact same as all other nations. So just because you're my people doesn't mean that you get special privileges. Remember how many times it says God shows no favorites? That's how it goes. If you reject God, doesn't matter who you are. The result is destruction. Now, notice in terms of the vision, verses 8, 9, and 11. 8, 9, 11 describe the vision. Uh, verse 8, it says, you looked. Verse 9 says, you saw. And verse 11 says, you did not look. But it's, it's, it's talking about what, what is being seen. And the Israelites just put blinders on, closed their eyes, and allowed others to, to control them. They willingly did that. Especially the Babylonians. Babylonians show up and the Israelites say, here's my weapon. I mean, there was no fight at all. They just immediately submitted. Now, verse 8 is interesting. So, um, verse 8 says, says that Judah, which is the, the region around Jerusalem, um, and Jerusalem was a fortified city, big walls, that there were holes in the wall. There were cracks in the wall. There were you know, entry points. So, the defenses of Judah are stripped away. So, they are becoming defenseless. So, look at the second half of verse 8. They don't look to God... They looked to their weapons. You looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. The palace of the forest is an area off, off to the side of Jerusalem uh, that would uh, would be similar to uh, Camp David, a retreat center. Um, but forest, you can defend yourself pretty good in the forest. 
right? So they put a lot of weapons in there and everything, and that was like the last holdout in you know, in case anybody breached the walls, that they, they would all run, run, run to the forest. But they won't look to God. Verse, verse 9 then, you, you, you see the city of David, of course, is Jerusalem, how many breaches. So rather than come to God, you devise a plan. You store up water. You count the buildings in Jerusalem and realize that, well, we don't have any building materials, so we need to tear down our houses to plug up these holes in the wall of Jerusalem. But again, there's no, there's no crying out to help. There's no God. Now, what, what do we do here? There's, there's, God is not involved, invited into this situation at all. You build a reservoir, verse 11, between the two walls. So you're, you're, you're trying to take care of yourself. They only trust in their own strength and ingenuity. But then look at verse 11, in the second half. You do all of this, but you do not look to the one, capital O, who made it, or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. That's the crime. Again, a disregard of God in the midst of crisis. Now, we should not disregard God when times are good, but certainly you think you'd have enough sense in a crisis to realize I can do this and you will cry out to God. But even his own people refuse to do it. We will protect ourselves. But now a hopeful note, verse 12. The Lord continues to reach out to his people. He called you on that day, it says, to repent. But you continue to reject him. So with God's people, he even makes it more specific and says that you, you guys know this. These other nations might be able to plead ignorance, but you guys can't. You know that this is our relationship. You know that you're supposed to, to, to if you go away from me, to return to me. And you're supposed to repent. You're supposed to recognize you have sinned and ask for forgiveness. But they refuse to do it. Because, verse 13, instead of repenting, they continue to enjoy the fruits of their labor. We don't need God. Crops are good. We've, we've uh, fortified the city walls. We've got weapons in the, in, the, in the palace of the forest. We're good. And so literally, as they're sitting around a table, eating, drinking, and making merry, the Babylonians come in a blink of an eye. We keep reading, it sounds like even the sentries on the wall didn't have time to, to ring the bell to sound the alarm and warn the people that this was coming. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now that, that's, if that's not a description of today, I don't know what is. I mean, there's a huge percentage of 18-year-olds that say that they have no hope of living to age 25. They've adopted such a reckless lifestyle that you know, they just, you know, all kinds of dangerous things and uh, um, you, know, you, you see evidence of that on YouTube. I mean, you know, people jumping off of buildings and doing all kinds of crazy things. I mean, years ago, what, where's the, there's a dam around here somewhere. 
that uh, some years ago, and it was, it, it's, uh, it's on YouTube, you can see it, a kid jumps off trying to hit the water. Of course, it was, it was out too far, missed it, and just comes down and just, just, just nosedives right, right into the rocks. Um, you know, we're out there partying and having a good time. Hey, everybody, look at me. And nothing ever good happens when somebody starts, hey, look at me. <laughs> um, it, it, it's just terrible. So it's just so much of that prevalent today. You know, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, you just, just make the most of today and you have no, no hope of tomorrow. I mean, what, what could be sadder than that? Well, depression, wasn't it? Well, since then, I think it was. Yeah, there, there, there was like back in the eighties or something. I think it was that the. Uh, but yeah, there's been so many times since then where somebody also has said this is the end of the world. And they can prove it and all of that. And of course, those days come and gone. You know, my 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 favorite was uh, one of the more recent ones. Um, who was that? Yeah, but who, who, who responded to it? Um, was it Billy Graham's son? I, I forget. But, but you know, this guy saying, you know, next Tuesday, the end of the world's coming. And so this guy calls him up and says, well, the end of the world's coming. You've you got a couple million dollars in the bank for your ministry. Tell you what, you know, why don't you transfer that money to my account? Because you're, you're not going to need it anyway. So the guy, he didn't do it, of course. But <laughs> and, of course, nothing, nothing happened. So, yeah, I mean, there are just tons of that. And, again, Jesus says... Jesus says you're not going to figure it out, just be ready. So it's actually a sin to try and figure it out, is what, what, what Jesus is saying. So when somebody says they figure it out, don't listen to them, because if you side with that, then you're, you're sinning as well. Y2K was, was, was a lot the same, remember? That was 17 years ago, holy cow. Man, are we getting old. Um, that was a lot the same thing. All the computers are going to crash, and yeah, you know, planes are going to fall out of the sky, and everything. And yeah, you know, it's just—it's not going to happen that way. We're, we're not going to wipe ourselves out uh, by technology or nuclear war or anything. It says clearly, you know, that, you know, God's in charge of this, not us. We're not going to take ourselves out. It's just going to keep getting worse. I had a friend ask me about the December twenty-first, twenty twelve. The Mayan calendar. Yeah, the Mayan calendar thing, yeah. That was another big one. He was a little bit nervous about it, wanted to know. I said, no. It just makes me laugh. So, verse 14 then. God declares that he knows that these people will not repent. He knows it. This sin will not be atoned for. He knows his people will not repent and come back. For certainly if the people did repent, God would surely forgive them. But he's simply stating, I know you're not going to do this. The offer is still on the table. I wish you would take advantage of it, but I, I, I just know you won't. You're, you're so stubborn and arrogant. Now verses 15 and 16, we come across this guy named Shebna. I have a great name. A high-ranking Jewish official. And he's responsible for, you know, I mean... Officials in Israel were responsible for, first of all, the spiritual well-being of the people. And then secondly, the, the physical well-being of the people. You've got to protect them, you've got to feed them, you've got to, you've got to take, take care of them. That's this guy's job. But the description in verses 15 and 16, what this guy does with his power, is he spends all this, this government money to make a memorial, a statue to himself. 
He's still alive, but he wants to be remembered when he dies. So he makes this huge elaborate tomb with a huge statue of himself on this, costing you know, tons and tons and tons of money, but that's, that's what he's all about. And God says, well, I got a different plan. Look at verse 17. God will take firm hold of you and hurl you away. <laughs> okay. And again, God's not saying that and saying, well, I changed my mind. This is what's going to happen. Verse 18. Another indication that God's wrath has come upon them as a result of their putting their faith and trust in military strength rather than God. See the reference to the chariot? Right? Chariot is a, is a symbol of war. So this Shebna guy has, has done that and now wants to simply be remembered. But God says that attitude is only, only going to lead to disgrace. Verse 19, rather than being remembered, Shebna is simply going to be forgotten. Verse 20, so what God is going to do is take the title and emblem of Shebna and give it to some guy named Eliakim. Which, when you start reading that, it sounds, okay, finally, somebody gets it here. But watch what happens. Verse 21, Eliakim does such a super job, he becomes like a father to Israel. That's certainly what they need. They need a, they need a father with, a, with, with an iron fist to you know, whip his people back into shape is what he needs. And apparently, you know, Eliakim starts to do that. But then verse, you know, verse 22, And what place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, what he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. And that sounds like what Jesus said to Peter, right? You're in charge. So Eliakim is basically leading Israel. But look what happens. Verse 23, it starts to, to turn. So he's using, again, symbolism. Eliakim's going to be like a peg that I drive firmly into a wall to, let's say, hang a picture. Now, I know how this works because my parents just moved into a, a, a retirement cottage and with my sister there, there was a very heavy painting that they had, pretty expensive, and they put a nail, whatever it was, in the wall, hung the painting on there. They're in another room, and about 15 minutes later, they hear this huge crash. Now, of course, the couch was there, but they had pulled the couch away enough that the painting actually slipped right behind it. If the couch had been there, it would have just hit the couch. <laughs> so it came down with a mighty crash because the peg didn't hold. So this is firmly put into place. But then look what happens. Verse 24. The glory of his family, Eliakim's family, is going to hang on him. His offspring, offshoots, children, grandchildren, in other words, all the nation of Israel, lesser vessels, all of it. Everybody starts hanging on this Eliakim guy. He's a painting on the wall, and you keep adding weight to that, eventually it's going to snap. Verse 25, in that day, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and it will fall. And the load hanging on it will be cut down. So as good as Eliakim is, 
what happens is then all of Israel sees him as their savior, not God. No sense there do the people come to God. They come to Eliakim. And he allows them to keep putting weight and burden, and I'll do that for you, I'll do that for you, I'll do that for you. You know, you just tell me what you need, and I'll do it for you. And eventually, snap. So basically, all they did was take their, their, their idol worship of these foreign gods and made Eliakim an idol. But again, in the process, refusing to come to God. So I guess this is a good opportunity for me to tell you that as your pastor, I... I refuse to do that. I refuse to be the pastor that tells people, just, just come to me and I'll, I'll do everything for you. You don't have to do anything. I take very seriously God God's mandate of my ordination found in Ephesians 4, where it says the pastor's job is to equip the saints. Not do it for the saints. <laughs> so you're just hanging on me. But equip the saints to do the ministry. So, yes, I am here to help you. I am here to guide you. I am here to resource you. I am here to give you a swift kick if you need it. (laughs) Right? Because the day I leave, there will come a day that if I made you rely on me, the next pastor that comes you will be ill-equipped to do any ministry on your own. You won't know what you're doing. And you will then hang yourself on the next pastor. Pastor, do this for me. Pastor, do that for me. What this is saying is that no human can sustain that. All that does is make for a small church. Because the pastor can only hold on to so much. So, if that were my mentality, my mindset in this, then... That means that whatever I can reach is all that we can do. But it says I'm supposed to equip you so that you can do that. An extension of this church going into the community and everywhere. That's what a church is supposed to be. Not me thinking that I am a super preacher and that I can handle everything. What I'm saying is my job is to point you to God, not to me. So as good as that Eliakim was, it has no sense of him saying, no, 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 stop this. You need to go to God. He allowed them to keep patting him on the back saying, oh, Eliakim, you're the greatest guy ever. Oh, you know, just, just putting praise on him like crazy. And he just ate it up and eventually snapped off the wall. Came crashing down and everything is lost. So I will say to you, I will walk side by side with you. Together, we will walk to God. But I can't take you to God if you don't want to go. I can't take you kicking and screaming. That's the message of chapter 22. And I hope that's a message that will stick with us. That's, that's some pretty powerful stuff. And again, this is to God's, God's own people. That just can't seem to get it right. We need to get this right. What other thoughts do you have in chapter 22?
I just did an incredibly thorough job of explaining all that, didn't I? My goodness. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.